0: I want to consider, as we've looked at the aspect of family and relationships, we have to understand that God's Word, even though uh, there's a lot of latitude within the precepts that He gives us, the precepts are very specific. And the last few weeks, we've been discussing that of Reconciliation and restoring in relationships and in conflicts, and I want to conclude that portion today as we uh, have looked at some of that. And I want us to understand the first of all that even though this series on marriage and family has covered, we've looked at God's purpose in marriage, we've looked at God's uh, design for marriage, for the woman and for the man. Then we started examining that aspect of communication. Communication is essential. And uh, good communication is essential. It's essential in relationships on every level, whether it be family, whether it be uh, relationships in the body or at work, Or in marriage. So I want us to understand the importance of what we're looking at. We've considered the aspect of if somebody has gone astray or somebody has fallen into a snare, how do we help restore them? Well, we've already looked at the process and we've come to the last portion of this process, which is we've talked to the individual or tried to Uh, reason with that individual on a one-to-one basis and then two others. Uh, And then we've talked about bringing it before the church and then all of them in prayer and trying to reach out. Now, within that, we have to recognize that people don't always want to respond when we try to bring forth correction. And so uh, when that happens, we can only uh, carry out what we can in this process. But the whole purpose here is to lift that individual up in prayer and to reach out for the purpose of restoring them. And if we lose sight of that, then we're going to lose sight of God's whole purpose in this, and it's going to fall short. So we have to understand how critical it is to have the right attitude, the right uh, understanding of God's purpose, as well as being able to carry this out in accordance with his desire. Now, Paul makes a very uh, strong statement in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, and I'll just quote it to you. It's in verses 3 to 5 in 1 Corinthians 5. It says, For I... On my part, though absent from the body, but present in the spirit, have already judged him who has committed this sin. Committed this. As though I were present in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you're assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved. In the day of the Lord. That's a difficult text. Um, We have to understand, what is Paul saying here? Uh, When he says, I'm going to turn such a one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Well, before we get to that aspect of it, we have to understand what he means by, I have uh, judged him who has committed sin." When we look at the language in any text, we have to understand meanings. Now, when we look at the word judge, there's uh, prohibitions against judging another in Scripture. Matthew 7, judge not, lest ye be judged. And here, Paul said, I've judged such a one. And later on in the text, he says, do you not judge those who are in the church? at the end of 1 Corinthians 5. So, how do we look at that? Well, we look at it in terms of the uh, meanings. The word judge here that Paul is using, in the, and later on in the same context, he says to judge. And he is already judged. What that means is to examine and investigate with careful, discerning judgment. That's why when we consider this whole process, Paul gives the exhortation to do so and to restore a brother who's in a vault or a sister with gentleness and meekness, but we must be in the spirit. We must be able to spiritually discern whether or not this is truly a transgression that that individual is caught in. And that takes discernment. The other word for judge, the one used in Matthew 7, has a different meaning. That's a hypocritical, self-righteous, condemning judgment. That is carino. The first one was anacarino. carino. This one is a condemning judgment which God warns us against. Not only there, but in in James as well. We're not to carry out that kind of a judgment upon anybody. We don't judge anybody, and certainly we don't do so with the attitude of a condemning, self-righteous, hypocritical judgment. So it's key to understand the terminology and the language as we look at a text. And to also bring it into context. If if not, we are going to have difficulty and probably cause more of a conflict than was there before. The believer's called to exercise a right righteous judgment. In the book of John, verse 24, the Lord says, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So what does that mean? How can we judge with righteous judgment? Okay. Dorothy hit it on the head there. We have to judge scripturally. We The measure is God's word, and we have to be able to look at it from a biblical standpoint in order to understand how to approach this. So we make moral, discerning judgments. There's instances in which we try to uh, approach somebody that's exercising bad behavior, and it actually puts us in a pretty vulnerable position. Because what we're doing is coming alongside somebody... Challenging them or confronting them with their sin, and they're going to rebut against us. They're going to attack us if they're not in the right. If we're not in the right place with God, first of all, we shouldn't do that. There's no way we should. Yes, Theta. That's a perfect example of what could happen. Do you hear what Theta says? Couldn't we do more damage if we approach it with hostility or anger and attack the individual? Absolutely. We could do far greater damage to exacerbate the whole situation, to elevate it even to a level that's worse than it was when we attempted, before we attempted. So our attitude and our actions have to be prayerful and discerning, and we have to do so in the spirit of gentleness and meekness. Now, when we do so, if we're attacked, do we take that personally? Why don't they say, well, who do you think you are coming after me? I mean, you know, are you perfect? Isn't God forgiving? Isn't this the whole purpose of Christianity, to be loving and forgiving? How do you respond to that? Is it that we're going to uh, try to defend ourselves? Or do we just understand where this warfare is coming from? Paul gave a great uh, exposition in Ephesians 6. We're not going to go there. But when we consider somebody who's in a snare, somebody who's in a transgression, they're not going to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. So their responses are not going to be in any way a biblical response. Gentleness, meekness, love, joy, peace. None of that's going to come out of an individual who's in a transgression because they are not in communion with God. So we can almost anticipate that to be so. And so if we recoil from an attack like that, then we may lose the whole opportunity of being able to exercise gentleness, meekness, self-control, all those characteristics of one who is in the spirit. Now, it's important to understand if our hearts are right, then the whole motive is not to attack the individual. Our whole motive is to restore them recognizing that they're in a snare. Now, if God himself gives us this instruction, are you warm enough in here yet? Okay, could you turn that off? please? I thought it was my uh, teaching, but... Just kidding. As we think about this, we have to understand just how much God loves an individual that he wants to bring him. He loves him with a godly jealousy. In other words, his zeal for that individual is so great that he wants to restore them. He doesn't want them to continue on in their sin. And in fact, when we think of that, we could look over at Hebrews chapter 12. And in verse 6, it says this. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which we all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. This is a key text here. That shows you just how much God loves us. Uh, Chasten means to teach. Scourge? Who wants to tell me what scourging means in context of the New Testament? What does that mean? What was the practice in the Greco-Roman Empire when somebody was accused of a crime and sentenced? Sometimes they would be scourged. They'd be whipped. Now, this isn't talking about the Lord literally whipping somebody and scourging somebody. It's talking about elevating that chastening when a person doesn't receive that from the Lord to another level. God himself chastens us. That's how much God cares for us to be in a right relationship. Think about this. Whenever we sin and disobey God... We may be so calloused about it that we're almost cavalier. You know, how you treat somebody, or, you know, this is no big deal. It is. We have to recognize how much God hates sin. He hates it. We should hate it as well. As we grow in our knowledge of God, we grow in our knowledge of how sinful we are. We just look at just some of the responses that we ourselves have, apart from the grace of God, and we recognize how sinful we are. God desires us and loves us so much that he wants us to walk in his purity. That's why he cares enough to chasten us and, if necessary, to scourge us. So if someone's deceived into thinking they're okay, then slowly... Their senses are deadened to truth. Pretty soon, uh, God deals with them. But he wants his people to reach out to somebody who is in a snare. You know, uh, some of you here were in the book of Romans as we started going through Romans, which we're going to resume in chapter 9. But can you recall what happened in Romans 1? I know that was a few years back. But what happened there? Well, in Romans 1, the latter part of that gave the spiral down. Man started to sin, he didn't care, so he continued to sin and continued to sin. And pretty soon they were, um, they were going after their own time. And, okay. and that was the epitome of sin. Right. What happens when you, first of all, it started from rejecting God? Well, in the same way, a Christian can reject God's truth. And when that happens, you start deadening your senses to sin. Your conscience is starting to become seared. In Romans 1, it was talking about the unregenerate, and God eventually turned him over to a debased mind. There's no reason, no logic, and their behavior was utterly uh, despicable. And not only did they do those things, but they approved of others who did. So when they get to a point like that, when a person falls into sin and they don't turn to God, it doesn't get better. It just spirals downward. So we have to understand how critical this is to be sensitive to not only our own walk, but to others. Now, this does not mean that the church is supposed to micromanage somebody's life. So let's clarify clarify that. This is talking about somebody who is in a continual sin, a sin that is damaging to themselves and to others, as well as bringing reproach on God's name. That's when it has to be addressed. So we have to understand that. <clears throat> yes? Have you seen it where God has given someone over that way to a debate plan? Uh, Yes. What? Do you see it in the newspaper or do you ever? I'm talking about a, a Christian. Oh, Christian? That you were counseling. Uh, no, and that, in the context of Romans one, uh, that is talking about an unregenerate individual, okay. one who has rejected God. I'm talking about here that we can callous ourselves to truth, and sear our conscience by sin. Then God enters into it with chastening and scourging, not necessarily to turn us over to debased mind. However, you can see behavior that is that of an unbeliever. And manifestation of that. So we've gone to that process to where all of a sudden we're down to Matthew 18, um, verse 18. So we've already looked at the first, second, third step, and then the fourth step is that of, uh, if he refuses the church, treat him Uh, if he refuses to hear the church, that he has become to you as a heathen or a tax collector. So we recognize what? What does that mean? When when the church brings this matter to this level, it means that that individual is no longer credible in their testimony. Their lives are such that they're demonstrating that of an unbeliever. Is that too loud? Is it? Just turn your Okay. So when we recognize when it gets to that stage a person is treated they're no their their credibility as a Christian is no longer evident. Their testimony is no longer evident. So, what does that mean? Yes? Uh, what, would you speak a little bit on the churches that ignore sin in their churches? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, the question was from Diane. What about a church that ignores this process? Uh, oh, that's what happened in 1 Corinthians, right? Chapter 5. They were arrogant. They neglected to deal with sin in their midst. Paul rebuked them sternly. He called them arrogant. What happens, and I've seen it repetitively, unfortunately, is is oftentimes uh, it gets swept under the rug, or maybe um, somebody last week following this uh, Sunday school class was telling me about an individual that progressively started uh, to where they were living in immorality, and I said, uh, they said, well, should the church have done something? I said, yeah, and I said, let me ask you this: did the did the church carry out any form of a process here to restore that individual? And they said, well, the pastor talked to them. What does that mean? One person, one time, talks to an individual that they're in sin. That isn't what this is all about. It's not by taking it to the pastor and saying, well, pastor, somebody's you know, in sin, so would you go take care of that? That's not what the Lord Jesus Christ gave us as a command. The first individual goes to them, then two or three to bear witness of their sin and to try to encourage them to repentance. Then it's brought before the church. Then the church goes in prayer for that individual. And if they still don't hear, then they're put out formally. So I have seen that, and I've seen I've seen it carried out in an appropriate way, and it bore fruit. I've seen it carried out in an appropriate way, and it didn't bear fruit, at least to my knowledge at any point. That's it. Did you hear what Dorothy said? That usually a person just departs, goes somewhere else, or doesn't go anywhere. Yes? Do you think that could possibly be the reasons that some of these churches that are different that do not address this because they are concerned that they're going to their somebody to another church? Well, it isn't just a seeker. The question is, with some of the seeker-sensitive uh, churches, is it that they are afraid they might lose some people by carrying out this type of uh, restoration process. It could be in a Baptist church, it could be in a community church. If you don't carry this process out, which many have seen carried out wrongfully, then we're missing that opportunity to help restore that fallen individual. So yes, it is failed in many times in many churches to be carried out, or it's not carried out appropriately. It's done harshly, it's done with a lot of malice, and oftentimes there's uh, much in the way of gossip. If that happens, then those individuals are in sin as well. You see, when this fourth step transpires, it's talking about a heathen. Or tax collector. That's talking about an unregenerate individual. That's the reference. And so we reach out to that individual in love to try to restore them, giving them truth that of salvation. It isn't a call for the person to respond with scorn or treat the person badly. If we do that we're we're contributing and we're also in sin. <clears throat> so that's the way the Lord directs us to do so. Um, along with that, when a person is put out, that means they're put out from fellowship, no longer can you have communion, no longer can you participate in worship until there's evidence. Of repentance, I'll give you an example where I, I thought it was extreme, but a brother who is a pastor over in Tacoma, there's a very uh, active Bible teaching church over there who also is very strong and mission minded, but there was an individual in the in the body who got involved in immorality, and. Uh, so they started to carry out discipline on that individual, and the individual moved from Tacoma to Seattle. And they had contact with somebody in that body, and that person went to them. They, they didn't withstand the first and the second warning. They just left. That person went to them and approached them, and appealed to them, and when they did so, they they were so broken by their sin that they actually repented, returned to Tacoma, and confessed their sin before the church. That person is, is totally and completely restored into the fellowship. Now I thought, wow, that, I mean, I've never even heard of that. Uh, that's so unusual. Unfortunately, it's not frequently that we'd ever see something like that, but this is the essence of that kind of outreach. If we care enough about the individual, not looking at them, we may hate what they're doing, and we should, but never translate that into hating that individual. If you keep scorn upon them and reject them, you're not going to contribute to reaching out. Do you do that to... A, Unbeliever that you're trying to witness to, tell them how wicked they are and you know how great is... That isn't how we approach somebody. That's not the way the Lord demonstrated it. We reach out to somebody in love, recognizing that apart from God's grace, there go I. There's no difference. It's God's grace that is at work here. So our goal is to restore. Um... Let's, I told you I was going to cover a verse that's oftentimes misused. Let's look at verse 18. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And again, I say to you that if two or three of you agree on earth concerning anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Now, here's Christ speaking, right? He's the one that's addressing here. So what does that mean, um, to bind something and to lose something? Anybody know? Don't be afraid. Uh, it's not an easy one, but don't be afraid to try to respond to that. It's not an easy one, though. This is a rabbinical practice that was actually practiced during that period, so they would have understood. When it talks about binding something, and the Lord says it, surely I say, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Look at the context here. It's extremely important, because if we don't, we'll lift this out of context and all of a sudden, if two or three of us, we're going to bind Satan or we're going to lose somebody else or, you know, we start. There's all kinds of heretical practices that could come out of this last two verses. But what it means is if you have followed this process in accordance with God's outline, that it's already been bound in heaven. We've already agreed We've went through this process. The two or three witnesses verified that this indeed was sin. The person refused to hear, took it to the church. They refused to hear the church. And then we put them out for the purpose of still reaching out to them for the gospel. That is already bound in heaven or loose binding is that of understanding that the person is in sin if we forgive that's already loosed of that that's the context of this passage here it's talking only in the context of discipline now what about the the next verse again i say to you if two or three agree here concern anything that they ask it will be done for them by my father in heaven for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Let me ask a question. Have you ever heard that in a prayer meeting? I'm not talking about here, just talking about anywhere. Bible study, prayer meeting. Is that what he's talking about? No. No, it's not. Actually, if we understand God's attributes, God is omniscient, is he not? So wherever we are, if I could pray by myself, God is there. So this is not talking about that at all. This is talking again about the context of God's process of restoration. Let's look at it. If I say again that if two or three agree concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. If we come to a place where we have discerned sin amongst a brother or sister and we have followed God's process in accordance with His, uh, with the attitude and prayerfully and we've agreed that this is what we need to do and carry this out, God who is in heaven, who has ordained that, is in agreement with that as well. So, We could look at it in terms of Matthew 6 and the Lord's Prayer. Does he say that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven? It's the same thing. It's the same aspect of carrying out God's will here that he's already given to us to do. And it's agreed to in heaven by God because that is ordained of him. And when it talks about uh, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. That's also in the context of this process of restoring one who is in sin. That is that we are in agreement together. We've discerned this. We have followed your process to the Lord. And he is there in agreement. That's what that text means. So if you heard it lifted out, then understand that that has been taken out of context. We, we can pray by ourselves. We don't need to have two or three. This is talking about gathering together. The two or three witnesses have brought forth this statement of fact that has been verified. And they have brought it before the Lord. And the Lord is in agreement with that process. Steve? What are they asking him to do? do? The Lord? They're asking him to be in agreement with this whole process. They have put this individual out. Excommunicated that individual. And now they're treating that individual who is a so-called brother. Because this is in the context of the church. They're treating him as a heathen or a tax collector. That means that we are saying, no, that person doesn't demonstrate. his his. Uh, there's no fruit demonstrating that he is indeed a believer, a member of the body of Christ. We are in agreement here. God is also in agreement. He is the one who has outlined this process. So that's why I say to preface this whole thing, We go all the way back to that of being able to spiritually discern. That means we're in a right relationship with the Lord. We are spiritually discerning the righteousness or unrighteousness. We're to judge righteously. That is according to God's word. And God is in agreement with that. That's what the text is referring to in context. But notice this. It's it's. Not invoking God to come in and join them, but it does include God the Father and the Son in this process, as well as the Spirit. Because we are to do so in the Spirit. And God the Father is enjoined in this process, as well as the Son. So we have the triune Godhead involved in this process. That's how much God cares about somebody who is in a snare. Um, Now, let me just uh, carry this through. What then, if the process is carried out, and at some point in time, the hope and the prayer is that that individual will turn to the Lord? What do we do then? How do we respond to that individual who shows genuine repentance and what do we do as believers? Right. We not only take them back; we welcome them. Paul showed us that in Second Corinthians, of that one who had enough. Sufficient is in uh, that which you've carried out. So they carried out a discipline process in somebody, they were repentant. And Paul urges them, exhorts them to welcome them, to forgive them. Now here is where we have to transition over to Galatians 6. And I'll just do it briefly because I don't want to carry this under an ongoing teaching here. I just want to summarize it with this. When, If you would, turn to Galatians 6 for just a brief Look at this overview. Galatians 6.1. Brethren, if a man is overtaken by any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness and considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Then he goes on to say, bear one another's burdens. Uh, That is a very strong statement it's um, that of carrying a load that's too heavy for someone else it's first of all talking uh, the illustration would be that of coming alongside somebody in that period of time that was carrying a load oftentimes they would travel on foot they couldn't afford a mule or donkey and they couldn't didn't have any means of carrying so they would carry their belongings on their back when they're going from place to place. That Ill <clears throat> translates into the idea of coming alongside and helping them. It's a, it's a burden too heavy to bear. So when we talk about somebody being restored, it's not only welcoming them back in fellowship, but it's helping them in the process of strengthening them when they do turn from their sin. We don't just drop it there and have a big uh, welcome committee and welcome them back. That should be a great rejoicing time when a sinner turns from their sin. But also, we are there to strengthen them. We have to bring them back with the encouragement that we're going to go through this with you. We're going to help you with this. What's that look like? It's different in every situation. But we're there to pray for them, uh, help them, and perhaps a bit of accountability. Uh, Whatever the transgression was, the the vulnerability was, we help them so that they don't fall back into that transgression. That's what this means about bearing another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? Within these two commandments, the law is fulfilled. To what? Love the Lord God with all your mind, strength, and heart. And then to love your neighbor as yourself. We're, this is fulfilled by loving that individual and reaching out and making sure that you try to come alongside. They might be very vulnerable after being such a snare. We have to recognize that. And if they trip, help them up. If that is, if they fall into a pattern, back into whatever it was, help them out. Pull them out of it and be there for them. Uh, This is the fruition of the process. We don't just let somebody flounder after they've gone through this ordeal of sin and ensnared, or even if uh, they thought they were a believer and they turned out to be a, just somebody who professed Christ. And then they turn to Christ through this time of prayer and outreach. We need to strengthen them. How do we do that with the word, with prayer, with encouragement, discipleship? Right. This is a a crucial aspect, what Dorothy just brought out. When somebody comes to the Lord, it isn't just a matter of going to church and joining in fellowship and participating in Christian activities. That's part of it, and that's a good part. But it's also discipling those individuals. A disciple is a follower of, that's all that means. We are discipling those individuals with principles from God's Word. We're teaching them God's Word. Um, I was blessed when Marcia and I were blessed, uh, when we came to know the Lord that, uh, this one pastor took us aside and, and asked, you know, I was always asking questions at Bible studies and he said, I finally went to him, actually, and asked him if he could teach us more on a personal level. And he said, sure. So we started meeting. We ended up meeting for three years, once a week. For uh, At that time, I was working as a medic, so I <clears throat> would meet him on my days that uh, I was off. And I was able to uh, go through extensive studies. But it isn't just learning some biblical truths. It's learning how to apply those truths. And it applies to every aspect of our life. I mean, it's, it's a joy to disciple. Because when one comes up against something, you can, you know, you're able to help them see from a biblical perspective, okay, how would we approach this? What is our attitude? What would God have us do? If we don't know those things, we're just kind of floundering. You wouldn't take a newborn babe and just uh, baby infant and just set them on a table and not feed them. You would feed them, change them, keep them warm, and nurture them. That's why Peter says, "Desire the milk of the word." You know, where it isn't that there's a different level. There's milk, and then there's another part that's meat. It's a deeper understanding the meat. We can have the same text go through and have a a minimal understanding, but as we grow in the knowledge of Christ, we'll have a deeper understanding of those truths. And as a new babe, uh, we have to be able to nurture them in the word of God. Unfortunately, that falls flat today in our culture. So we have to realize the importance of it, and to carry that role out, you don't have to be a five-year seminary student or a two-year seminary student. You need to be able to disciple that person as to where you are, at least. The truths that you have learned, Second Timothy 2, these things you've seen and heard of me, teach other faithful men. So we are to impart the truth that God gives us to others. So that is key. And that's what I'm talking about in this restoration process. So, we're going to continue on. Now, I want to address real briefly the youth. Um, We're going to be discussing marriage. And uh, I want to ask the question, you can be thinking about it. By the way, um, don't feel like you have to answer questions. I, I like to have input, but... You've already seen us as adults. I mean, we we don't always have the brightest questions or answers, but there's no bad question, there's no bad answer. We want to learn this process. I don't always, I'm not always able to articulate. it. It helps me when people ask questions so that I can go back and study to make sure I'm communicating this text as clear as it should be. So it's helpful to be able to ask those questions. And when we think about marriage, I want to pose this question to the youth. Um, Does everyone get married? Does everyone have to get married? I'm asking the youth. (laughs) 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 Johanna. Excellent. And I want to examine that. Did you hear what Johanna said? It's not always part of God's plan that somebody get married. Maybe. And that's fine and good. God's ordained marriage. But it may not be. And that's also good. So we're going to examine some of those things. We're going to examine the aspect not only continuing on the aspect of communication, but we're going to look at the aspect of, okay, as a single individual, if... I am considering marriage. Let's say the prospect is there. How do I determine if that individual is qualified? How do I know that this person is going to be equally yoked with me? Key? Absolutely. If we're not equally yoked, oh, there's misery. God's prohibited that first of all but it it goes on a lot more a lot more depth than just you know the person saying they're a Christian and the other person saying they're Christian and we're two Christians we're going to get married. Now there's a lot more to that. So we have to understand the depth of that. And we're going to examine that a little bit closer. Also the area of communication I want to make a statement if a husband and wife doesn't communicate, there can't be any depth to that relationship. You think that's too extreme? What do you think, Steve? I think communication is pretty much necessary, so you can't be too extreme. Okay, it's essential, and uh, even scripture gives us understanding of that. So how we communicate and how what we communicate is essential in marriage. So all these things kind of dovetail together as we consider all these relational aspects of family of the church of just human relationships and especially in that of the family unit. We were all part of a family. We all are part of a family. We're part of the family of the body of Christ, those who exercise saving faith. And we have been born, so we've got family. Maybe some we don't have with us any longer, but we've all been a part of a family. What God wants us to do is learn how to live within that family unit and bring glory to him and live it to the fullest. Any questions? Steve. asked yes, about communication. I think I'd like to say probably even more important than communication is like the idea of serving one another in love and forgiveness. Good, good comment. What Steve said that probably of more great, the greater importance is that of serving one another. That is having the attitude of considering the other as more important than yourself, Philippians 2, and forgiving one another, Ephesians 4, Matthew 18. I can give you replete examples of that. Forgiveness and humility. They actually go together. We can't forgive somebody unless we humble ourselves, and we can't serve somebody unless we're humbling ourselves. So those things may seem a bit uh, foreign to us in some regard in our contemporary society. Being humble? I mean, we've got all these celebrities that live for their sole purpose of serving themselves. And that's lifted up in our contemporary society. In Scripture, what's lifted up is putting on the mind of Christ. That is, the thinking of others is more important than ourselves. That's a great point, Steve. And that forgiveness element, we cannot continue a relationship unless we're able to continually forgive. That's why uh, the Lord uses the hyperbole of uh, Peter says, well, what should I do, forgive seven times? No, he says 70 times seven, not just 490. That just gives you the, the uh, illustration of conditional forgiveness. I mean, ongoing forgiveness. I didn't mean conditional Ongoing forgiveness, recognizing that we have been forgiven much. If we're truly believers, we recognize that we deserved hell. That's all we deserve. But God, in His grace gives us eternal life. We, in turn are to honor God with our lives. So this is a process. We need to take it serious. I mean, it's not something that we just, we're Christians, we're going to heaven. doesn't matter how we live, why we're here. It does. God wants to transform us into the image of his son. That is a process by which he works through his spirit, through his word, and our response to that. It's all by his grace. Let's close for now. Father, we just thank you for this time together. I thank you, Lord, for your love, for your word. And Lord, I thank you for each one here. I pray, Lord, that we might be able to exercise humility and love towards one another, not just for the purpose of doing so, but for the purpose of honoring your word and bringing glory to your name. We pray for the service, worship service to follow, that you'd be honored and glorified as we lift up our praises to you as we uh, celebrate communion, and as we also uh, celebrate the proclamation of your word. We just give you praise and ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church.